You're listening to Money and Meaning, Unlikely Allies, Building New Markets for Impact. With your hosts, Lindsay Smalling and Alex Kravitz. Check out our website, socialcapitalmarkets.net. Let's join the conversation. Welcome to Money and Meaning. This is your host, Lindsay Smalling. Hello, 2020. This is our first episode of season three. Our seasons are actually more like years. We had our inaugural season in 2018, then a full year of bi-weekly episodes in 2019, and now we kick off season three in 2020. If you're just getting oriented with this podcast, we highlight stories of market-based solutions, investing, business, creative financing, to address the world's greatest challenges. When we're not hosting this podcast, my co-host Alex and I are part of the team that curates and hosts the SOCAP and Total Impact Conferences. The SOCAP flagship conference is the world's largest convening of the social capital markets with over 3,000 impact investors, social entrepreneurs, philanthropists, nonprofits, corporates, government, and other cross-sector leaders coming together each year for the last 12 years um, every fall in San Francisco. And Total Impact is a new offering that we started in 2017 that caters to a more finance-focused audience and shares conversations and investment products to promote impact investing solutions across asset classes. We come across so many inspiring people, organizations, and ideas in producing our events and are thrilled to have this podcast as a channel to share great content and engage with a broader audience. Please share it with a friend if you like what you hear. On this episode, I interview Laura Callanan, founder of Upstart CoLab, and Maxwell Anderson, president of Souls Grown Deep. Laura was formerly the senior deputy chairman of the National Endowment for the Arts, and Max has had a long career as an art historian, curator, and museum director, including director of the Whitney Museum and many other prestigious institutions around the United States. They're collaborating in a variety of interesting ways to drive investment from arts and culture institutions into the creative economy. Let's jump right in. Laura and Max, thank you so much for being with us at SOCAP 19 for a great panel that I know got so many great reviews. And we really love having this podcast as another channel for us to sort of broaden the conversation and and share these really interesting collaborations amongst sort of what we call unlikely allies. Um, and so really glad to have you both here today and to to sort of summarize some of that conversation you had, but also hopefully go a little deeper with the two of you. And so um, to kick us off, I think we should just sort of anchor in the foundation of this conversation, which is investing in the creative economy. Laura, can you sort of, can you explain for us, what is the, what is the creative economy? Sure, Lindsay. So the creative economy is the economy of art and design and culture and heritage. Uh, it's more than 4.2% of U.S. GDP, which is more than $804 billion. It's more than 10 million jobs in the United States. And at Upstart Collab, we identify the 145 industries that make up the creative economy. And then we broke that into five main pillars. So ethical fashion, sustainable food, social impact media. Then we've got an other creative business category for 
architecture, graphic design, things that don't fit into those first three buckets, and then what we call creative places or real estate that supports creative activities. Great. And and how did you, um, are you a creative by training and a finance person by training? How did you come to this work? Uh, guilty on both charges, I guess. Uh, I majored in theater in college. I don't know that that makes me a creative person or not. Absolutely. Some creative aspirations. And then I took a 25-year detour in working on Wall Street and public finance investment banking, managing the endowments for the Wallace Foundation and the Rockefeller Foundation, where I helped Rockefeller begin its impact investing work back in the late 90s with the program Venture Experiment, Provenex, where we, in fact, invested in two creative economy opportunities. This is back in the day when the Rockefeller Foundation still had a creativity and culture program focus, uh, one of its four program areas at the time. And we made a loan to Smithsonian Folkways Records. And we made an investment in a software company called Netomat, which had grown out of an art exhibition at the Whitney Museum. So uh, I, I would say impact investing and creative economy went together for us at the Rockefeller Foundation at the very beginning of the discussion. And somehow the creative economy piece fell off. And so we're, I'm trying to bring that back together. And uh, this is this recent work anchors in my time at uh, as the, the senior deputy chair of the National Endowment for the Arts at the end of the Obama administration, where I g began to explore what creative people needed to succeed in their entrepreneurial activities. For those artists who move beyond the theater, beyond the con concert hall, beyond the museum, uh, to work in their communities and work in the world, not surprisingly, they need exactly what other social entrepreneurs need, which is access to markets and access to networks, but also access to capital. And, and because so many creative people care about the human condition when they start a business, the type of business they're starting as a social purpose business, so the type of capital that they need to scale and sustain that company is impact capital. Yeah, I think, I mean, it's it was sort of a light bulb moment for me, this idea of artists as entrepreneurs, which of course they are. Um, but I think we often, those are two different sort of types in our head sometimes. And artists, I still so often associate with this sort of patronage model and, um, and who knows how artists get funded, right? They're the starving artists. And so this whole idea of the creative economy, are you really sort of having to change people's thinking a little bit about what it means to invest in creativity? If you think about it as we do, that creative people solve problems, that's the same definition you could apply to a social entrepreneur, right? Right, Or any kind of entrepreneur, someone who sees a problem and they just got to go out and, and, and solve it. We, we know that creative people will use a different set of approaches, skills, talents, as they come up with the right solution to the problem that they see. Uh, and they'll use the power of art and design uh, to address the problem that they see. But that's great. And what we're finding is that impact investors can accomplish all of the types of impact that they are seeking in their other investments throughout their portfolio. They can achieve those same impacts through thinking about and investing in the creative economy. So just for an example, if you're an investor who cares about uh, environmental issues, well, if you're investing in a sustainable fashion company, they're addressing environmental issues, either through their production process, using less water, uh, avoiding pollution, through the materials that they're working with, which could be out of recycled plastic bottles, right? 
there you'll get an environmental impact. If you're an investor who cares about quality jobs and, and uh, labor issues, investing in an ethical, sustainable fashion company, those companies are also treating their workers well and thinking about what the employment opportunity is that they're offering to their employees. If you're an investor who cares about gender lens, women and girls, the majority of people working in the garment industry globally, it's women. And so you can achieve your goals as a gender lens investor by investing in an ethical, sustainable fashion company. So it's a, by looking through a creativity lens, uh, you are able to see more high quality opportunities that you might otherwise miss as an impact investor. Uh, it, it, uh, it offers more ways to get that social impact that you already want. And the creative economy is growing. It's growing in the United States. It's growing globally. It's growing 9% in the developed world. It's growing 12% in the developing world. So this is a moment for impact investors to get in now and help to shape how that creative economy is going to grow with values of inclusion and equity and sustainability. So in a generation from now, when the creative economy is bigger than it is today, we don't look back and go, oh, if only we had known, if only we had embedded a set of values, the creative economy could have grown in the right way. We have that chance to get in on the ground floor now, embed those values through values aligned capital and get the creative economy to grow in a way that we will be happy with uh, 25 years from now. That's great. Yeah. And you're sort of sometimes um, in the way you framed it there, it's sort of if you come at this from an issue area like climate change or workers' rights, here's how you can start thinking about the creative economy. But I, I also think it's interesting. You start with people who have a love of the arts. And Max, you're someone who's worked in the arts for over 30 years and sort of helping people who already have this deep love of the arts, this deep appreciation of artists as problem solvers and, and this shift to thinking about how can you use um, investment approaches, um, how can you use these other types of capital to really catalyze those, those, that, those creative folks. So Max, can you share a little bit about your background and how you sort of became aware of this intersection of the arts and, and investing? Sure. I'm an art historian. I started by getting a doctorate in art history and went on to be a curator at the Metropolitan Museum of Art and then a museum director for 30 years. And in the course of my first directorship way back in the 80s in Atlanta, I got to know the Deep South in a way that as a reformed Yankee, I had no experience with. And I got to see artists who lived and worked in poverty. And as a function of that, over the years, I kept showing their work in exhibitions at different museums in different cities and always felt an obligation to them because they had switched me on to an understanding of American creative heritage that had never made it into the art market, into major collections, or frankly, north of the Mason-Dixon line. So in time, I took on the leadership of this art foundation called Souls Grown Deep Foundation. And we have, thanks to Laura, begun to think about the resources that we have, which are finite, being deployed not just in furtherance of educating the world about these great artists and their contributions, but also using the resources to invest back in the communities that gave rise to these artists. And it's with that in mind that we're parking some funds with Laura's advice through Upstart CoLab into a variety of investments that will, we hope, reap benefit, both in terms of return for our capacity to give but also have direct impact in the lives of people living in the Deep South, in the Black Belt, 
And it's with that that we began to work together, and I have been assisting Laura and making headway into the art world, which is a fairly impermeable world in that it is self-reliant, it's unregulated, and it isn't one in which there's a great deal of transparency about business practices or how decisions are made. So we're looking to gather the interest of museums that have billions of dollars in their endowment portfolios which aren't thoughtfully invested in respect to impact. Instead, they're focused on maximum return. And our hope is to convince them, which shouldn't be hard given the data that Laura has brought to the fore, to rethink their investments to be aligned with their values and mission. And that's what we're about these days, which is a really compelling and exciting opportunity. So the two of you have uh, are a tag team now, permeating the art world. How's it How's it going so far? What's the response been? I, I know that in other areas where there are trustees and large amounts of money involved, things that sort of seem like an obvious opportunity to align with mission have been slower to move than some people would think. So how's the response been so far? You're right that this work takes patience and you and the team at SOCAP know that and you've been charting it for for many years now. Uh, I'm starting to be more hopeful and optimistic because instead of me beating on the doors of artist endowed foundations, cultural institutions, and asking them if they wouldn't like to learn more about mission-related investing, we're starting to have incoming phone calls and emails from leadership of these institutions inviting us to come and address their investment committee or address their board to uh, spend some time with their C-suite executives to talk about mission-related investing and how it can address some of the pressures that museums and other cultural institutions find themselves under. That's wonderful, right? To have a a pull for this uh, uh, learning and people asking these questions and wanting to feature it on the agenda of their committee meetings and their board meetings. That's phenomenal. Um, We are thrilled that the Rockefeller Brothers Fund is supporting us to convene 10 museums in April 2020 at the Picantico Conference Center uh, to talk about mission-related investing over two days. We're going to talk about what it is and why you do it, and then we're going to talk about how it gets done and what the implementation looks like. And We are inviting 10 museum directors to to join us. We're asking each of them to bring either their board chair, their investment committee chair, their COO, someone who is an ally on on this topic within their institution. Uh, And already we have commitments to participate from the National Gallery of Art in Washington, the Nelson Atkins Museum, the Whitney Museum, and a whole uh, set of other museums from across the country who will bring different perspectives, represent endowments of different sizes, uh, represent different values and and, um, uh, steward different types of collections and cultural assets. But we're very excited to be able to jumpstart this conversation in an organized way with 10 leading cultural institutions this spring. That cohort model is so important. I mean, in so many examples of this industry, you can see that, I mean, I think it's just human nature. You move with your peers and sort of being the only one who's trying something feels like maybe you're you're on the wrong track, but when people do this work together, they seem to move faster and, and form more of a real commitment. So I, I'm guessing that's sort of 
you've seen that too, Laura, and that's probably part of the reason for this cohort approach. A little positive peer pressure never went awry. Yeah. <laughs> it's great to have a, an ally in this who really knows the museum world as well as Max does. Uh, everyone who's been looking at their newspaper this last six, nine months have seen the headlines in the New York Times and beyond about the museums that have come under great pressure from artists and from the public about tainted donations. And we're, we expect that museums will want to get ahead of that conversation, which is only, it's only a matter of time before the questions turn from where donations uh, originated to how museum endowments are being deployed. Um, so Max, maybe you could you speak about this so well because it balances both the reality of the fact that museums do rely on wealthy donors to support them and the truth that if they're going to be anchor institutions for our communities, our museums need to ensure that they are invested in a way that supports their and reflects their values. Yeah, we're one of the few developed nations in the world that lacks the equivalent of a ministry of culture or a national commitment to culture, to the arts. So it falls on the private sector to develop resources to support museums, libraries, universities, and in our case, clearly the arts institutions of leading cities are predominantly supported by their endowments, by annual giving from trustees and donors, upper level members. And those are the sources of income which effectively power what we all take in, which is collections, exhibitions, and programs. But as Laura says, the last couple of years has been very challenging for cultural leaders in that a lot of the resources brought through the generosity of donors has been identified as coming from a poison tree in some cases, whether it's manufacturing of dangerous pharmaceuticals or arms merchants, or in some cases, fracking in the spoliation of the environment. So all of these are leading museum directors to be at crosshairs between their boards, who consist of these generous donors, and their public, who are looking for evidence of social justice, of a reformed approach. And it all harkens back to a long time ago when universities were facing this with South African investments in the 1970s, and diamond mines, the blood diamond issue was very much in people's consciousness, and it seems to come in waves. So now we're looking at how museums are coping with this, and as Laura says, we're trying to get ahead of it because we assume that a lot of the museums that today are not under a microscope will likely be so. And what better way to both educate their board and their public that they're taking the 95% of what they own in cash and portfolio value and deploying it in a way that's responsible, that's mindful, that's aware of the values and mission of the institution and not purely and abstractly about gain. What we are clear about is that investing in the spheres that Laura's team at Upstart Collab are identifying don't involve any downside risk. They don't involve a jeopardy of taking a traditional portfolio and throwing it to the wind and hoping for the best. Quite contrarily, they are really the areas of the economy, in many cases, that are the most vital, the growth in alternative energy and the opportunities that that provides, shows that museums would be better off if they were thoughtful about 
the alignment of how they operate, how they invest, and how they program, instead of waiting for someone to point out the disjunction between what they say and what they do. Some of these silos within institutions have become so sort of calcified over years that those groups may not even sit in the same building, maybe not even in the same city. And and it's interesting to see how once you can get past sort of this is the way we've always done things, um, a lot of organizations find it so empowering on both sides that, you know, the program team really gains a deeper financial understanding that the investment team gets a much more holistic understanding of of how the mission is being implemented so i'm hopeful that um that you won't face too much resistance because it seems like there could be some really amazing opportunities for those investment staffs to to be to have a more interesting side of their job to think about how they invest in alignment with that mission and as laura has already seen Contributors, major donors, are often incentivized to make new contributions or redirect what they've given to see it aligned with impact investing. And it could actually, for especially a new emerging generation of of wealthy patrons or potential patrons in the tech industries and bioscience and all these other arenas who haven't thought of culture as a destination for their support, if they start to see that art museums are not basically palaces for the wealthy, but instead are community-focused, cultural heritage-focused, and are prepared to act in a way that's consonant with their more progressive values, I think it could actually result in more support for art museums as well as better investing. So one of the only museums that we know of that has really embraced socially responsible and impact investing is the Louvre Museum in Paris. They have an endowment fund, it's about 250 million euro in the fund now. And over the last three years or so, they have begun to invest 5% of that in a socially responsible and impact oriented way. And the chief investment officer of the Louvre endowment speaks very eloquently about the Louvre being a Uh, a a public institution within France. And he felt that as the chief investment officer stewarding these funds, it was important that the average person within France felt like they understood how this money was invested in a way that made sense to them. And that best-in-class investing was not going to be something that appealed to or made sense to the average French person. And so socially responsible and impact investing, he thought, would make sense. And he describes the purpose of the Louvre to be around education, around culture and heritage, around um, craft and artisanal activities, all of those things, art and design and, and, and heritage, etc. So not only is the Louvre uh, screening out to uh, fossil fuels and and weapons and and things that are bad, they are intentionally working with socially responsible fund managers who on their own independently have identified opportunities to invest related to uh, sustainable cultural tourism programs and, and schemes and invest and preserve the expertise within artisanal and craft businesses. So 
identifying opportunities to invest in the creative economy that very specifically align with the uh, the values and what's important to the Louvre Museum. We think it's fantastic that we've got this great example within one of the most important global museums. Uh, we hope that our U.S. museum leaders will look to that for inspiration, but we're very excited to find this as a precedent and a role model for the cultural institutions that we're starting to discuss uh, mission-related investing with here in the United States. Absolutely. No, it's so helpful to have one of those great role models and such a um, well-respected institution. Uh, Max, I want to make sure that we talk more about Souls Grown Deep. I mean, I think you have, you sort of shared this personal connection that you have to the mission um, but it is such a, uh, sort of targeted mission that's so tied to cultural heritage and you've mentioned, you know, cultural heritage, uh, community involvement. Can you share a little bit more about what you've been doing so far with Souls Grown Deep to really think in this more expansive way about how you manifest sort of that tradition and, and heritage? Sure. So broadly, we think about American cultural heritage in the 20th century through a specific filter, and that is the art market. And over the last 30, 40 years, the art market has been fairly predictable in its appetite for certain types of art, collectible art made by artists who are validated in the marketplace as leading voices in their respective areas of painting, sculpture, the field of design. What's not happened is a wholesale look at the history of American art doesn't include people validated by the market. And the analogy I would draw is music. We think of American jazz and blues as among the greatest inventions of American cultural heritage, but they were spawned of a part of the country that was in poverty, that was lacking in formal training, that had no access to the types of markets that we think of in the music industry broadly, apart from Nashville as the unique exception. But African-Americans were largely excluded from all of this. And so what our foundation does is we are looking through the contributions of about 160 artists who worked in the era of Jim Crow right up through the civil rights era, whose works of art were very testamentary to the struggle for civil rights, to their religiosity, to their convictions and interests in larger social issues. And we have a collection that started with about 1,300 objects. We've now placed over 300 works in 20 leading U.S. museums, from the Metropolitan Museum of Art to the Fine Arts Museum of San Francisco. And what we're doing is incrementally seeing those works end up in public collections as a way of educating the public about the accomplishments of these artists. In the process, we are working with the museums on a gift purchase agreement, which is fairly standard for artist foundations. Museums receive a major discount when they purchase work from us. We turn those resources into grants and into investment funds. And so we see it as a kind of virtuous circle of beginning with the creativity of these artists, ensuring that it meets the proper filter within the cultural establishments, public at large, and scholars are aware, and using the fruits of that to benefit the communities that gave rise to this tradition. An example was a show I did when I was director of the Whitney Museum of American Art in 2002 called The Quilts of G's Bend, a small community in Alabama. 
the New York Times reviewed the show and said that these are some of the most spectacular works of modern art produced in America. So we're not talking about a program which is a benefit to a group of artists who are lucky to have it. We're the ones who are lucky to have access to this heritage. And that's the privilege and the process by which our foundation moves ahead. And then when I hear about this and try to translate the goals and purpose of Souls Grown Deep into things that can be uh, can guide a, a mission-related investment strategy and particularly think about opportunities in the creative economy, I pick up on a focus around race and social justice. I pick up on a focus around financial inclusion. Obviously, there's a regional focus in the Deep South because the G's Bend quilters of Alabama, the majority of, of artists in that group are women. You get a lens and investment uh, opportunity. Uh, there's obviously a, a tie-in to fund managers that are trying to support African-American entrepreneurs and other entrepreneurs of color, closing friends and family funding gaps, etc. cetera. Uh, there are a lot of things that quickly translate into guideposts for an impact investing strategy. Um, when you understand and think about the the focus of Souls Grown Deep Foundation. One of the things that we've discovered at Upstart is that there is a strong correlation between women entrepreneurs and entrepreneurs of color and those entrepreneurs those entrepreneurs starting creative economy businesses. So as you're trying to provide capital to those entrepreneurs who are often overlooked and underestimated, it can align pretty pretty well with a uh, dedication to supporting creative activity. Yeah, and I would just add in respect to the, the catchment of the places and people that we're working with at Souls Grown Deep, it runs the gamut from the most powerful art collectors in the world who are acquiring work by some of these artists as promised gifts to museums and down to the people who are responsible at our end for the, the caring and feeding of artworks that need to be stored properly in climate control and made certain that we're preserving this incredible American heritage for posterity. So the spectrum of humanity involved is quite broad, even if it's a narrow opportunity in some respects, because it's about specifically 20th century African-American art from the Deep South. But in a larger frontier, I think what Laura has shown is that the art world in general was passed by by impact investing. And unlike so many other nonprofit disciplines which have been in this space longer, we've been slow to catch up. And the privilege and opportunity to be helping former colleagues and museum leadership see this is part of the real pleasure and satisfaction. That's great. Thank you. Um, and and I guess, Laura, since you have this much broader view, um, these are incredible stories that Max is sharing. Where else are you seeing sort of great examples that our listeners should know of? I, I always think sort of specific examples in different use cases are, are helpful to have. Sure. So, you know, we already shared the example of a great investor in terms of the Louvre Endowment Fund, but let me share an example of a great investment opportunity, one that we actually launched at SOCAP 2018, the LISC New York City Inclusive Creative Economy Fund. This was the result of a strategic partnership between Upstart CoLab and the local initiative support corporation LISC out of their New York City office. And it was really a proof of concept to see if you build the 
right investment vehicle, will a new set of impact investors join in to the work of community development finance institutions. So the New York City Inclusive Creative Economy Fund was launched in the fall of 2018 to raise $5 million of capital that would be used to invest in affordable creative workspace in New York City with a few goals in mind. One, to preserve the character of New York as a place where culture and creativity is both uh, produced and consumed, uh, to boost quality jobs for low-income low people, for middle-skill workers in the creative economy. Fun fact, in 1950, 30% of New York City jobs were manufacturing jobs. Today, 2% of New York City jobs are manufacturing jobs. So where do those folks work? And the creative economy can be a new, uh, very gr strong and growing uh, place for middle-skill workers to, to go to work. Uh, so we, we tested with LISC to see if we could use the power of their AA rating, if we could use the, the venerability of their 40-year track record, if we could plug into their existing uh, credit review process and, and ability to deploy capital effectively in low-income communities to the benefit of those communities. Could we target the creative economy? Was there the right deal pipeline? And would there be a new set of investors who cared, who weren't already working with LISC? So we quickly established that there was an investable pipeline for multi-tenant shared workspaces in New York City's creative economy, working with development partners like the Brooklyn Navy Yard and Greenpoint Manufacturing and Design. And then we went out and proved that there were individuals, donor advised funds, foundations, and endowed cultural institutions who wanted to put money to work in a way that drove impact and benefited the creative economy. That was really the test. A lot of this conversation that we've had so far is, is at sort of an institutional level, so large endowments or financial institutions. How is this relevant to an individual and maybe even to an individual who's not sort of ultra high net worth? Well, uh, let me give two individual examples. And, and then obviously all of impact investing is trying to be uh, uh, more accessible across the wealth spectrum to investors at every level. And uh, the creative economy, I think it will be part of that, part of that movement. But just thinking of, of two individual investors who have been very uh, helpful to us in our thinking at Upstart Collab about this new space. One is the investor, Lori Meyercord, a 100% for impact investor who herself is an artist. And when she first articulated the goals of her impact investing portfolio, uh, creativity, art and creativity was on the list. And originally her wealth advisors and had said, well, listen, we're really, we don't know how to to fulfill that goal, uh, we can help you think about your your human empowerment goal. We can help you think about your goals regarding the environment. We can help you think about a lot of other priorities that you've articulated for your investment portfolio. But you know we're coming up short when it comes to things connected to creativity. And we we got introduced to Lori in uh, in early 2016, and she has been uh, I think both a good partner for us philanthropically, but a great example of an investor who is deploying capital into the creative economy um, on an ongoing basis. 
we were lucky to have Sam Bonzi join Upstart Collab in a conversation at the Smithsonian Institution uh, about two years ago. It was a day-long discussion about the power of giving, and it was the power of giving related to the arts. And I had been asked to speak and be part of the program and to curate a, a section. And I, and I said, I'd be glad to come and talk, but you're focused on philanthropy. And if you invite me, what I'll be talking about is the power of impact investing in the arts. So if that's okay, I'd love to, to join you. And I was invited to bring along a creative person, an artist entrepreneur to speak about why they need impact capital to grow their, their, uh, their business and their work and to bring along a next gen impact investor to speak about how important the creative economy is to, to him or her. And so Sam came and joined us and he gave a great talk, which you can find on our website and elsewhere uh, on the Smithsonian website, basically saying, you know, my, my grandparents were art collectors. My parents were trustees for arts institutions. My generation invests in artisanal cheesemakers and uh, restaurants that bring different heritage tradition so you can try new new foods and in uh, sustainable fashion companies. And this is what my generation does. We don't just buy art objects and we don't just uh, enjoy the prestige of being affiliated with a cultural institution as a trustee. We want to invest in something that's active and that links creativity and impact together. You know, my generation, we're impact investors in the creative economy. So those are just two examples of, of individuals that I can share. I might just add that one of the interesting opportunities ahead is how 401ks can be invested in lines of activity that are consonant, again, with impact investing. And it's, again, for the cultural world, it's a new idea, but one that we hope very much will be an outcome of our deliberations in April, because every employee of the thousands of museum employees around the country should have the right to see that their portfolio for retirement is invested in a way that's consonant with their values. And the museums in question and the artists endowed foundations and symphony orchestras and so many other ingredients of the cultural mix should obviously make that part of their opportunity for the staff as well, which could extend obviously more broadly and far beyond the cultural community. So as you can hear, we're seeing the creative economy as both a source of new impact values aligned capital and a use for that values aligned capital. Yeah, no, that's great. And I think you're also both through these examples sharing this broader definition of creativity that that I think is more accessible to people and um, this idea of really of cultural assets and that wherever you're listening to this podcast from the place you're in has a cultural history, a cultural tradition, and are there ways that you can um, engage in that, support that, uh, help that to live on and to do all of the great work in that community that it that it has the potential to do. And one of the reasons that we think it's just such a natural fit between the cultural community and impact investing is this long-term perspective, right? Long-termism, is one of the fundamental principles of, of why impact investors take the approach that they, that they do, not thinking just quarter to quarter, not trying to drive short-term results, but to think of kind of going forward, um, what the long-term implications will be about today's decisions. Cultural institutions obviously have a stewardship role. Uh, 
They are responsible for connecting heritage and innovation at the same time. Creative people build off what's come before. They either add to it or they reject it and they try to go in a completely different direction, but constantly with an awareness of what's preceded them as well at the same time, always trying to push boundaries and be original and to innovate. And for me, this is very, um, this really uh, aligns beautifully with the philosophy that I think underscores a lot of impact investing. If I might just say, Lindsay, a, a through line back to the visual arts is that so many of the most successful, compelling artists at work today are making works of art about impact. Absolutely. They're not simply making works collectible and decorative over the sofa of an affluent art collector. They're making experiences. They're making calls to action for the public at large to be aware of the challenges that are facing society, whether it's the environment or civil rights or social or economic justice. And they are impatient, thank goodness. They are, those creative voices are impatient about the status quo. And they're often, in the case of Maurizio Catalan, you may have seen recently at the, the art fair who sold a banana duct taped to a wall for $120,000. It was a ridiculous act of social protest on Catalan's part to say how rarefied art collecting has become that people will actually pay six figures for a banana duct taped to a wall. It was an act, in his case, of protest. And so many artists are excited about how their works of art can have a place in a place of conscience rather than simply being additive to the portfolio of an investor. And so I think there's a great circle of content, of activity, of thrust and desire of creative people to be engaged in a way that aligns very well with impact investing. Yeah. No, I mean, it's um, the intersections are abundant. And it's, it's amazing. Once you start really looking for this intersection of the arts, social change, entrepreneurship, investing, it just, it's opened my eyes up quite a bit. And while I don't think it got a lot of attention in the impact investing world, the 2017 Whitney Biennial included an artwork, which was a social impact bond investment document framed and put on the wall. Thank you both so much for being here with us today. I think these stories are so accessible and inspiring, and I think everyone has a little bit of an artist in them. Um, so thank you for the work that you're doing, and we look forward to hearing how that summit goes in April and, and hope to hear more from you at SOCAP next year. Lindsay, we appreciate the opportunity to share this with the SOCAP audience. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Lindsay. A great privilege to be with you. As always, you can learn more on our website at socialcapitalmarkets.net. The blog post that accompanies this podcast has links to articles and resources related to the work that Laura and Max are doing. We have a great lineup of interviews and live recordings to share with you in Season 3, so please subscribe, rate us on iTunes or wherever you listen, reach out anytime with feedback or ideas, and thanks for listening. You've been listening to Money and Meaning, unlikely allies building new markets for impact. With your hosts, Lindsay Smalling and Alex Kravitz. 
You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever podcasts are heard. To learn more, check out our website, socialcapitalmarkets.net. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at SoCapMarkets. Thanks for listening.